You're listening to the IMWT Podcast. I'm Thomas Rodriguez, and I'm joined by... Micah Bailey, and we also have Dr. Amy Von Lintel with us. Would you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, sure. I teach art history here at WT, and I came in 2010, and this was my first job out of graduate school, and I've been here ever since, and I don't plan on leaving anytime soon. It's been a really good fit for me. And one of the things that I found when I came here, I wasn't working on things like regional art history, George O'Keefe. I was doing things to do with Europe, but I got lured into a really interesting, you know, regional history and, and art history in this area that surprised me. So that was really fun. That's cool. So what made you want to pursue art in the first place? Well, in my undergrad, I went to the University of Kansas, and I knew I either wanted to be in chemistry or history. And I remember taking a class of art history, and it kind of clicked because art history is about materials and objects and how they're made. And the history part is in there, but you learn it through material things rather than just text. And it really fit me well. And I kept taking it and taking it. And finally, I think the second semester, I had a really good teacher who said, have you thought about majoring in this? And I said, no, but maybe I should. And I never looked back. So did you like grow up here in this area? No, good question. Yeah, I grew up in the Kansas City area. And so that's why I wound up at KU because it was pretty close to my home. And my dad went there too. So I really wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps. And then after growing up there, I did my master's at SMU. So I lived in Dallas. And so Texas was kind of a home for a while. Loved it. And then I did my PhD out in LA. So I lived in Los Angeles for a good six years. And then, like I said, this job opened up. But my family, my not my mom and dad, but their parents and my grandparents, they were from Western Kansas. So this kind of high plains atmosphere seemed a little bit like home. And so, yeah, I was excited to move to a smaller place. LA was fun when I was younger, (laughs) didn't have kids. And I miss the food, but I don't miss the traffic. And yeah, I live in Amarillo and Amarillo, like the kind of small town, big city or big, small city, big town feel is exactly what I really like. You moved a lot. Uh, yeah, but I think when you're in academics, you tend to go where the programs are. And I, you know, I was lucky enough to be fully supported by each of the schools that I attended. So I came out debt free, even though I was in school for a million years. And I also taught while I was doing that, like I did TAing work. And that really let me know that, you know, teaching was in my future rather than, I mean, another field you can go into in art history is museums. And I love museums, but I don't think, you know, I did museum internships and it just wasn't for me. I love teaching. Like that's the education aspect of it is is really where my heart is. And then the research aspect too balances that out. And so WT was a really good job because it's a teaching school and teaching is the focus, but they also have some research requirements. So there was a little bit of a deadline to get things done. And I did, and I'm really proud of the work that I've done since I moved here. It's been really fulfilling. So you did art history. Do you have like a favorite artist? Oh, God. George O'Keefe. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it changes day to day. I've been teaching history of drawing this semester. And what's been so fun is like when you teach art history in the core curriculum, you teach basically the same things year after year. And I love teaching them like Michelangelo or whatever. But you kind of get sick of it. Like it's a little bit 
boring after a while. And in history of drawing, we rediscovered Michelangelo, Leonardo, Van Gogh, all of these artists that I've been teaching for years, but we looked at their drawings, which you don't get to focus on in some of those general classes. And so I just fell back in love. And I think that's what happens a lot when you pick a new topic. Like in the spring, I'm teaching a course for Seesaw, the Center for Study of American West. And it's uh, looking at the adobe structures that were in this area that have now been lost. You know, like in old Tascosa, the kind of cattle town, it had as much adobe as it did anything else. And so, you know, there's just always a new project around the corner, and I fall in love with each one of them. So you don't have a favorite person or an artist, but do you have a favorite painting? <sighs> That's even harder. Oh, you boy. guys are stumping me. Making you pick I one. mean, uh, I know. I mean, there's ones that when you're in their press, you can't really love a painting until you see it in person or any work of art because in a digitization of it, it doesn't have the size element or it doesn't react to your body in the same way. And this summer, I took students to New York City for an art trip and we got to see George O'Keeffe's paintings and watercolors and drawings in the Museum of Modern Art. And Ones that I had never seen before started to speak to me. Some of her charcoals, no, sorry, the pastels. Like she just pounded that pastel so thickly that the color is like you're looking at gemstones. It was just amazing. I know I'm being vague, but I think the thing is seeing those in person, you do fall for them. Or like the first time I ever went to the Van Gogh Museum in, in Amsterdam, I've always loved Van Gogh. Okay, fine. And you think, but you're like, is he that good? You know, but like people were standing in front of those paintings for like a good 20 minutes and not moving because they're so emotive. Like you can feel the artist in them. And so those kinds of works where the artist's soul comes through the piece and that could be a different one on a different day. But I think things that have that kind of human to human connection that you feel like you're standing there with the artist, those are the ones that get me. So you said Amsterdam, so you've been all over the place then, like not just in America. Yeah, like I said, when I was studying art history before I came here, I studied mainly French art. I got a double major in French in college, and I think I've forgotten everything I learned. But then I did a lot of research in France, and then for my dissertation, I was also doing research in Britain. So I, you know, went to Scotland, I went to London for a while, and then, you know, lots of research in France. But on one of those trips, I think I made it over to Amsterdam, because in Europe, you just hop a train and go around wherever. So I've seen a lot of the world. I've seen a lot of the world, but I've also seen a lot of the U.S., and I really like, you know, even the going to the different national parks nearby here, like Big Bend or whatever. So yeah, travel is, I think as an art historian, you can't not like travel. You have to, I mean, because you're just always interested in wherever you go, you pop into a museum or you look at the architecture and look at murals. Now this mural movement is huge. So travel is kind of part of it. Yeah. I would say I, I've never met an art historian who wasn't into travel. <laughs> so I know you said this door at WT opened up for you. And so you came in and accepted this position, mm -hmm. but well, you have been all over the place. What made you decide um, Canyon, Texas? <laughs> Again, when I was looking at jobs at that time, I applied to like so many different jobs and there was one that was at the Claremont Colleges, and I always saw myself like being at a liberal arts college, but it was only for six months, and it was a fill-in for somebody. And then another one I looked at was about three hours away from my hometown, and I fell in love with that liberal arts college too, but it was only two years, and they couldn't guarantee anything, and this one was what's called a tenure-track position, so, you know, you kind of, you come here, 
and they invest in you and you invest in them. And then once you get tenure, you're kind of secure in a way on the, the place, you know, on campus. And I think that's what I wanted. But like I said, it was also this kind of like a homecoming a little bit because I had lived in Texas and then I had these roots in western Kansas, which is really connected to this area, High Plains. So a lot of reasons, I think. And also the students. When I came here and interviewed, they knocked my socks off because they were so interested in what I had to say. And I put together a teaching presentation that had to do with O'Keefe or had to do with Cadillac Ranch because I had done some research on the art in this area. And they taught me and I got, you know, I could share my knowledge with them about that stuff. And I've never stopped doing that in my classes. It's always just been really fun to kind of discover things around this area and share them with your students. But then your students have these stories because they grew up here. So it was a good fit. You were talking earlier about going to various art museums. Do you have any involvement with our museum here? Panhandle Plains? Yes. Of course, yes. So she's now one of my best friends, but she was also my student, the curator of art, Dina Craighead. She worked at Amarillo Museum of Art, which I'm also affiliated with them and work with them sometimes for years. And then she decided she wanted to come back and get her master's, and she did. And so she worked with our program to do that and then got the job at PPHM. And we have co-curated the show on Emil Bistrom, who was a Taos-based uh, transcendental painter. And there was a huge collection of his late works that was in Amarillo, kind of in a basement. And so we did that. And it was also with our colleague, John Rivette, who's the painting and drawing professor and also the program director, so te- technically my boss. But like the three of us made a really good team on that show. I've also co-curated with Michael Grauer when he was here. So prior to Dina taking that job, he was the curator for years. And we did a really interesting show on the relationship between Kansas City and Amarillo. We were both from Kansas City, but he started digging through the PPHM collection and came up with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things that connected those two cities. So, you know, mostly curating work, but I also take my students over there all the time. Every semester we're visiting. I also do a lot of work at the research center through whether it's like research projects that I'm working on or I'll take students over. We looked at architectural drawings in my history of drawing class. So, yeah, I can't I can't imagine not having a museum to teach with. Yeah, because I, I the, the first time I kind of shame to admit this, but the first time I stepped in there into the museum was this semester because I was taking like a, a basic art class for, because it was part of my career plan, or not my career plan, sorry, my um, degree plan. And I stepped in there and I was like, well, there's a lot more in here than just history stuff. There's like all these paintings and stuff. And I was like, wow, that's a lot. Yeah. There's art, there's guns, there's saddles, there's murals, there's <laughs> buffalo, stuffed buffalo, there's everything, you know? But yeah, I I love that museum. It's a little bit of a maze to figure out where you are, but it really does do a good job of highlighting what this area has to bring and not only the obvious things, but like, you know, those European paintings, how does that have to do with the Panhandle Plains? Well, people collected them, brought them here. So yeah, I think they do a great job over there. So you teach some classes here, correct? Yes. Okay, so what what do you teach currently? Right now I'm teaching history of drawing and I'm teaching a grad class on abstraction where we involved writing as well. And we really focused on O'Keefe, George O'Keefe in that class because she was a letter writer and she also wrote about her own drawings. There's this wonderful book about her drawings. My grad students are learning to write about art while they're also learning about art. And then my third class is, 
What am I teaching right now? Oh, a really good one with uh, with Anne Medlock, who does the theater does costume design. We're doing the art of fashion. So we do fashion history across time and across the globe. And I bring the kind of like art historical knowledge because a lot of stuff that we know about early fashion comes through art or material culture. And Anne does the aspects of like how the thing is made, how it's constructed. You know, we do lots of projects. Right now our students are doing these projects where they can't use fabric. They have to use anything but fabric. And they're making a historical silhouette out of like they had to pick a bottle or a vase or something as the base, and then they add stuff on to make the silhouette be the shape that is recognizable in history. So, yeah, lots of creative classes, lots of collaborative classes, lots of travel classes. Every summer we do that. Probably a very long-winded answer, but <laughs> lots of good classes are, are going on in the art department and also in, like, art theater collabs or art English collabs. We do a lot of collaboration. I was thinking when you brought up the make like an outfit without using cloth. I actually had a a project like that back when I did tech theater in high school. I remember yeah. it was a it was a fun experience. I remember one guy because one group. There's always that one group that has no idea what they're doing. They put the guy in a trash bag and they were like, "All right, you're good." Done, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go the, down the runway. <laughs> we had this one guy do the entire dress from the 18th century. So think of Marie Antoinette, made out of paper towels, paper towel rolls, paper towel folded paper towels for all the frills. It's amazing. It's still in my office. So we, Anne and I always like divide them up and keep them on display over the years. So if you come in our offices, you're like, what are those things? But yeah, no, really good. Like lots of creative based assignments rather than just teaching them to do things like I do to research based assignments, which I'm happy to do at a higher level. But most of the time my students are art students and they really like that creative project kind of assessment. Well, we're going to take a really quick break, and after the break, we're going to dive into some more about George O'Keefe and Dr. Amy Von Lintel's involvement in the recent donation at the Cornet Library. You're listening to IMWT. Donors to West Texas A&M University give more than their material support. They devote time, expertise, and commitment WT would not be what it is today without individuals dedicated to our forward progress. Welcome back to IMWT. We have Dr. Amy Von Lintel with us today, and we are going to talk a little bit more about Georgia O'Keeffe. Dr. Von Lintel, you are an acknowledged expert on Georgia O'Keeffe during her time in Canyon and Amarillo. What drew you to her? When I moved here in 2010, it was an interesting moment to be here discovering O'Keeffe and discovering the area at the same time because she was a prolific letter writer, but she also was very protective about her private life. So when she passed away in her will in 1986, she said, no one can look at my letters no one in the public can look at my letters for 20 years. So they had opened them back up by 2006, and I was here in 2010, and things had already started to be published, digitized, accessible. And so, you know, I had heard all kinds of lore from people around here. Well, did you know she did this, or did you know she did that? And I was like, well, I wonder what she thought. <laughs> so I just started going back through and, 
reading all those letters. And then I wound up editing a volume of her letters focusing on her canyon years. So this was a time where she was talking about life and love and teaching and art and weather, tornadoes. And I mean, just all, you know, the smell of her fruit. It wasn't really her fruit, I don't think at that time. I don't know, 1910s. But she taught me about this area as I was discovering this area. So that was a kind of interesting marriage that worked out perfectly for me to fall for the place and for her at the same time. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. So recently, the Cornet Library received a donation of letters written by Georgia O'Keeffe. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and your involvement in that as well? Sure. So the story is actually really interesting. In 2016, I had been working with the O'Keeffe Museum on an exhibition that they were putting together on her watercolors from Texas. So she did a good number of watercolors when she taught at WT, which was 1916-1918, and they Uh, Most of them were in the O'Keeffe collection, which they were already in Santa Fe, but some were distributed all over the United States. So they brought all of those together. I was working on that. I did the essay for their catalog. And into my office while I'm doing that work walks this woman carrying these three heavy briefcases and and just collapses onto my couch in my office. And tears are like streaming down her face. I said, may I help you, ma'am? Like, are you okay? (laughs) And she introduced herself. She says, my name is Jan. I am Ted Reed's granddaughter. And I have some stuff that my family has collected over the years. And so I started looking through the things and I pulled out what I was pretty sure were original O'Keeffe letters. She has this very distinct handwriting. But I also knew, having done the research on her life and love life in this area, that she had a relationship with this man named Ted Reed, who was a student, not her student, during the time she taught at WT. She was a professor. He was a student. That was slightly, you know, eyebrow raise. But there was wonderful letters from O'Keefe about Ted. And so when this woman said that's who she was, I was like, wow, this might be real. So I started, you know, looking at the letters, and I asked the O'Keefe Museum if they thought that there were any red flags, right? So one of the ways that you authenticate things is, does it look like she could have written this? Is it her handwriting? So the handwriting matched. Does it have a provenance? Which means, does it come to me by a very understood path where there's not gaps, where, you know, people aren't hiding who owns it for years or something? If it was in this family where and, and these are later letters, so it's, it gets a little bit confusing. The letters that we have at Cornet were from 1946? Yeah, 1946, 1978. So they're not from the time when her and Ted were actually dating. They kept in touch later, right? So I'm asking myself, could these be real? Does it make sense? It looked like her handwriting. She did have a long-time relationship, even just a friendship with this man. This man is related to the woman in my office. Like, it all just added up. So then Jan decided, you know, what do I want to do with these things, right? And so she said, I want to bring them back home to WT, which is where Georgia O'Keefe and Ted Reed first met. And so we thought about Panhandle Plains. She's like, no, because that wasn't here at that time. But WT was. So we decided to, you know, gift them to Cornet Library Special Collections. And, you know, the staff of the library was, like, uh, important in doing some inventorying of the materials beyond the letters because there was all these other ephemera that came in those suitcases. And so it was a really good fit. And so, you know, COVID happened and they didn't really get to do the big announce until now. But now – so they've had them for a couple of years. But now was the good moment to kind of announce to the public – 
So that's a long-winded story, but it is a really interesting story for how we have these letters that are, you know, from an interesting time that is not the time O'Keefe was here. Very, very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. And that we get to be a part of that as well. Yes, that WT has original letters by O'Keefe is really mind-bending because most of the letters, like I said, she sealed them up. She gifted them to Yale. The Beinecke Library is one of the top special collections libraries in the country. So, you know, O'Keefe knew she had good taste. She knew where she wanted her stuff to be preserved. She gave it to, like, the best preservation library in the whole country. But the fact that we have a few of them and they came to us very honestly, very naturally, very organically is so exciting. It's like super exciting, right? And then I've had students just kind of go in there and look at them and stare at them for a long time and be like, oh my gosh, she wrote that. And one of the things that I did with the presentation that we did at the library and that I always do with my students is just put up one of the letters on the screen and ask, what the heck does it say? Because her handwriting is nuts. It's so hard to read. So that was a fun game of like, what letter is this? What letter is that? And I think maybe next semester I'm teaching his history of graphic design. I might have my students do a project where they do an alphabet of O'Keefe's letters. <laughs> the D is not going to look like a D, I promise you, but it would be a fun project. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that you're a pretty massive Georgia O'Keeffe fan. Yes. Do you have a favorite painting of hers? Oh, you keep asking me this favorite painting. It's like picking between my children. You guys, <laughs> don't ask me this. What is my favorite painting today? Okay, I'll tell you this story. The one in the Panhandle Plains Historical Museum is one where she, in a in an era when she was doing watercolors, which her watercolors are stunning and, and beautiful, that one is a little, like, lumpy and weird, right? But she was working through oil for the first time. She did that after she had done all this work from the Paladero Canyon, so it's inspired by the canyon. But when that traveled to the 2016 show at the O'Keeffe Museum, the conservator, who's become kind of like a good friend of mine, a mentor to me, one of the smartest people I know, he was working with that piece and he had it upside down. And he said, I'm falling in love with this piece. And he showed me what he was talking about. That piece has radial symmetry. Like you can put a pin in the middle of it and spin it like a pinwheel. She's always really controlled with her texture. And in that, you can tell she's struggling through it. But like she's still a designer. And that painting has, I've fallen in love with that painting even after first seeing it and being like, man, not my favorite. Because of that element of the underlying graphic design that she always has in her paintings. And you can even find it in that early moment where she's struggling through a different medium. She's responding to our canyon, which of course is stunning. She doesn't respond to it in a way that's literal because it's like this bloody red color, like the canyon's not bloody, but for her it felt like that. And so I think it's all about abstraction, it's all about design, it's all about the struggle for her to be a teacher and try to make art. And so there's so much more in that painting than just what it looks like. So for today, that might be my favorite. <laughs> you have several publications ranging from Georgia O'Keeffe to gender and art history to an essay regarding the magical images in Harry Potter. Also recently released was your book, Expanding Abstract Expressionism, Women, Artists, and the American West, co-authored with Dr. Bonnie Roos, who's the department head for English, Philosophy, and Modern Languages. What inspired you to write some of those, and what does it take to pen a book of that magnitude? <laughs> oh my gosh, magnitude. I'm not sure. So I'll start with the recent one with Bonnie Roos. Bonnie and I have worked together as friends and colleagues and writing partners for a while, and we both bring out the better part of each other. And so with that book, I'm the researcher. I get in the weeds, in the details, in the footnotes, and Bonnie tells the story. 
I feel like I'm I'm a okay writer when I have to be, but she's the one that is like the writing genius in that, and I'm the one that is the historian. And we also did a lot of trips for that book because that book was about, it's not about O'Keefe, but it's about three other women artists that worked in this area. They're known for being New York-based artists, but they happened to be in this area over and over and over again. We were so interested in that. So we traveled to private collections and saw these works that are out of the public eye, took photographs of them, studied them, met the people who own them. And so back to that travel thing I was talking about before, we had so much fun doing that kind of a book. So when you say magnitude, I think what the magnitude of that one is, is telling a story about this area that has touched so many people and trying to kind of put it into a beautiful volume that did justice to the people, the art, the artists, the area. And so I think that's what that one was about, or if it has magnitude. I am the kind of person that will find any project and dig into it that fascinates, almost like a detective. Like, oh, wait, there's something over there. I'm going to go follow that. Like that Harry Potter one you mentioned. So through Elizabeth Clark, who took me to the pop culture conference years and years and years ago in Albuquerque, and I love that conference. If you ever guys guys want to go to a fun conference, like academic conferences sometimes are a snooze fest, but that one is not. And she got me into Harry Potter studies. And I went and what what it was is like this kind of pedagogical look at how we can teach through Harry Potter. Now, mind you, that was 10 years ago. So Harry Potter's kind of on the out. I get it. But you're still here. Okay. So, <laughs> But what I got interested in is in the books, there were little images, like illustrations in the images. And then they talk about the magical movement of images. So I thought, what better way to talk about like the rise of virtual image-based technology and what that means for the ways of seeing today than use Harry Potter as a way in. And so, you know, I'm interested in gender history, definitely histories of women, regional history, but also the theory of visual culture and visual studies, right? So if the the thing makes us think differently. One of the classes I really love teaching is history of the, uh, or aesthetics of the new West. And so one of the things that we do is talk about like car culture and how that changes the way that we see, or, you know, when the railroad came and how that also changed the way that we saw the West, because instead of going slow on a horse, you're going, you're looking out a railroad window and how that means, you know, so there's these ways to think about seeing and vision that aren't just about artist and art right? Or like O'Keefe, an O'Keefe masterpiece. So a lot of my research is that, but then I wind up doing this like canonical artist, like the highest selling woman artist of all time right now is O'Keefe. And I dig into her. So it is master and masterpiece, but I'm doing it from a very regional perspective where I'm looking at, you know, what we can learn from her about this area and what this area can tell us about her. So it's very reciprocal. It's not like traditional art history where you're just doing celebratory, well, not that that is traditional art history, but some of the, the art history bores me the most, honestly, is just celebrating someone for their genius, because what is genius and what is what is beauty? Like, I like to ask those questions, especially with my students. So hopefully my publications all kind of do that in their own way, but each of them have a thread of interest that kind of caught me, and I kind of chased that for a while. Nice. So for current students, especially in the art area, mm-hmm. do you have any specific advice for them that you would want to be like, okay, you need to do this, you need to pursue this? Or sure. Something? Yes. Okay. So my argument is that no matter what your major is, no matter what you're taking, and this is for all people, but especially students that are at the college level, is embrace creativity. 
Like if you do not have a creative outlet in your life, like your life will be less fulfilled, I promise. And this could not just be visual art, going to a museum. It could be that. But play music or go to the theater or, you know, anything to do with the arts. Go to live music in town. Go see murals. Go study the city. The city itself is a work of art in a way. So just pay attention to the world around you with creative eyes. And I think you'll be better at talking to people in your job. I think you'll be better at problem solving. Right? Creative problem solving, even if it's in engineering, sometimes a spark of a beautiful thing can make you think differently while you're trying to solve a mathematical or scientific problem. So this is my pitch for why the arts matter. I really think it's not just like this fluffy side thing to life, right? Or like the real world's over here and the art world's over here. Sometimes the art world can be incredibly elitist and it can shut people out. But that's not really how I see it. That's not really how I want to teach it. I think art is everywhere. If we open our eyes, we can enjoy it. There's not one way to enjoy it. There's not one kind of art that's the enjoyable, good art, and then there's bad art. Like if you love it and it speaks to you, it's good art. I also teach sometimes the art market. I think it's really interesting why things are expensive or not or how the market fluctuates. It's a very fickle, weird kind of economic thing. So I also think art is very interdisciplinary. You know, I teach it that way. I teach, that's why I do so many collab classes because like I taught African diaspora with Eric Mel Meljack where he did the literature portion. I did the art and visual studies portion. And we learned about the global diasporic movement of people from Africa. I mean, it was fascinating, right? So for me, that's why this field is exciting, not just because of beautiful objects, not just because O'Keefe was kind of a super interesting person that I can't get enough of. It's that, but it's more. Well, Thomas, do you want to ask the big question? I'm going to ask the big question. There's a big question. It is the big question. I know that the favorite art pieces were difficult, but we got yeah. one, one, <laughs> You're last, killing me over here. one last big one for you. Okay. What does WT mean to you? <gasps> oh, my gosh. Home. It's home. Because I have met the best colleagues that are now my dearest friends. It's a place where I've nested. You know, I came here, and it wasn't my home, but it has become that. It's also a place where I've raised my family. We adopted three kids out of the foster system. Amarillo is now one of my places of research, and I, the city is mine. It's become mine. And I know that's not WT, but I think WT is nestled into this community, and this community is my home, and they're inseparable in ways that are really healthy for me. And so I felt supported here. I haven't felt held back. I haven't felt belittled and judged. I've felt the freedom to explore in the ways that I wanted to, and the support once I do explore that, they're proud of what I accomplish, right? So I think working at a place where it undervalues you would be awful. And this place doesn't do that. And then last but not least, it's my students, you know, and the alums. Like I keep in touch with all these people that are just the most amazing people. Like I said, when I first came here and interviewed, it was the students that sold me. Because I, I was looking around. I actually write this into the book that I'm working on right now. There's this like kind of personal intro. And I said I landed here and it was March and it was brown and everything was brown and kind of dead. 
And I came to campus and the first day was just like full of the boring interviews, which have to do with like, here's your benefits and here's your, you know, whatever. The second day was all teaching and I got to be with the students. And it was also a day where Royal Brantley, who used to be in the theater department here, drove me to my interviews in the morning at about 8 a.m. And the sunrise was there. And I was like, oh, my God, that's an O'Keefe painting right there. And then that day it was just magical with my students because they listened to me. They asked questions. They inspired me. So I'm like, okay, maybe this place isn't the prettiest it was March. What did I know? You know, I came from LA and everything's verdant and I'm like, whatever. But this place is beautiful at certain times with that 8 a.m. sunrise, like knocked me over. And then the people, the people are scrappy and hearty and committed and curious and loving and maddening sometimes. I mean, that's one of the things that O'Keefe writes about. There are people that drive her nuts and people that she loves. And I think that's every place, but this place has a lot of people that are lovable. Well. Yeah, I sorry, I'm processing. Because I, I think about the stuff here in Canyon, the sunrise, and the, I think the sunset also here. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing. Like, yeah, it doesn't get old. Like, Never. <laughs> I know it's a, an art thing for you, but for my specific degree and, and with recording and film and all that kind of stuff, people actually come out here to record the sunsets for their movies because it's just that great. Right. It's unbeatable or unmatched. Yeah, it's really special. But I think it's special in a way that you have to dig in or stay or look around a little and have an eye of being open. And that's one of the things Bonnie and I wrote into our Three Women Artists book because we really value that both of us aren't from here and we've come to love it, but it's taken time, it's taken work, it's taken digging and discovery rather than being in a place that's just like obviously overwhelmingly full of beautiful things, New York City or something, you know, which I love. But this place is like, it doesn't give it all to you up front. You have to kind of find it. And I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Von Lintel, for joining us today on our podcast. You can find all of our episodes at www.wtamu.edu slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to the IMWT podcast.